How are you? Good, good. My name is Adrian, and it's great to see you today. Welcome back to Carnegie Free. Excited for this new year and where the Lord might take us together as a church family. I'm so grateful for, for this church family. Um, you all are so generous to me and to our pastors and staff here, and um, just your kindness to us around the holiday was, was richly felt by Susie and me and so many others, and uh, very grateful to be a part of this church family with you. If you're a newcomer here, I'd love to meet you after the service or whenever you're ready to introduce yourself to us. Hey, I, I don't know about you, but I, I do like setting goals, New Year's resolutions. If you're in that camp, would you raise your hand with me? Okay, maybe 10% at the most. <laughs> okay. So, like, I know everyone's kind of down on New Year's goals and resolutions, though, these days, because they say they don't work, but uh, you, you hit a lot more of your goals than, um, let's see, how, how do we, you, you definitely hit a lot more goals if you make goals than if you don't make goals, okay? Um, this time of year, I always ask, how do I want to grow spiritually? And I hope you do as well. That you take time to kind of process, how do you want to grow spiritually? And uh, there's lots and lots of ways you can do that, lots of resources. You, know, you just heard from Matt, obviously, and there's others also. But of course, uh, two of the primary ways, though, that we consistently grow spiritually is through the Scriptures and through prayer. And so I, I hope that you would consider uh, making a goal of some kind, how you grow spiritually, and include in that the, the Scriptures and prayer. Uh, some years I like to read through the Bible as a whole. Other years I like to read through the New Testament a number of times. Uh, lots of different things that you can do, but one of the things that I've been learning recently is at times I actually grow more spiritually, maybe now more in midlife, I realize I grow more spiritually if I immerse myself into a handful of scriptures and really try to get those scriptures into me than when I just try to zoom through the Bible as a whole in a year. Anyone else? Have you noticed that? So that may or may not be you, but if it is, and you haven't yet determined what you want to study though this year, if I could just encourage for you to add to your, um, to your agenda for the year is this little card. Uh, you'll see it out at the uh, shelf, um, just beyond the garage door, and then also the information table. And it has just two passages on it. And what I want to encourage you to do, encourage all of us as a church family, is that we would memorize or meditate on these two passages multiple times over the course of the year. It's Psalm 16 and Colossians 3. Next week's message is actually going to be on Colossians 3. And these are just two, like, transformational passages. And if you choose to meditate on these passages consistently across 2024, I can assure you it'll affect the way you see God. It'll affect the way you see yourself. And it'll affect the way you see your relationships. And so I uh, encourage you to consider that. Again, you can pick that up at the information table or on the shelf outside these garage doors right after service. All right, would you raise your hand with me if you know there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother? All right, some of y'all know that. Yeah. Or maybe you know there's a friend who sticks closer than a sister. Some of you know that. Why is that? It seems to me that many of us understand there's a friend who sticks closer though than a brother because we've experienced rejection from our family of origin. Others of us understand that 
There's a friend that sticks closer to than a brother because we've found in a friend an emotional safety that we could be ourselves and we could bring our suffering and it was allowed. And maybe that wasn't allowed with our family. Now others haven't experienced that because what they have had is a sibling that stuck to them like a very close friend, a very close brother, a very close sister. And so they haven't necessarily experienced that proverb. But the Bible tells us, Proverbs 18 tells us, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, not to diminish the importance of family, but to elevate the importance of friendship. Okay? The Bible elevates family. To God, family is a really big deal. But you know what else is a really big deal to God? Spiritual family. Spiritual family is a really big deal to God, and we tend to kind of minimize it, not make a whole lot out of spiritual family, but spiritual family and with it friendship is a very big deal to God, such that the scriptures tell us there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. This January message series is called Good News for Friendship. You ready for the good news? You need one. You need a friend. That is the good news of God's design as he has chosen to make you and me. We need a friend or three or four that we can trust in, that we can count on. In fact, in God's design, there are some things that a friend can provide for you that even your mother and father cannot provide for you. And the way God has made things, there are things that a, a friend can provide for you that your son and daughter is not made to provide for you. And if you, if you expect your son or daughter to provide those things, which God intends for a friend to provide, you will oppress your son or daughter. And there are things in God's design that a friend is intended to provide for you that even, I hope you have faith enough to believe this, even your husband and wife, your husband or your wife is not meant to provide for you. The good news of friendship is that we really need one, and so we're going to practice here acknowledging the goodness of God's design. I wonder if you would look at me and even say out loud to me, I need a friend. Would you do that? Say it with me. I need a friend. Okay, don't say it to your neighbor. That would just be strange right now. <laughs> but looking at me, you can say it online as well. If you're watching online, say it with me. I need a friend. Okay, that's a good thing to acknowledge, that in God's design, we are made to need a friend. Here's the big idea for today's message, and frankly, it might be the big idea for this entire series that we're looking at through January. When we embrace God's design, we win. When we don't embrace God's design, we lose. And that goes for all of life, including in this area. And frankly, right now, as a nation, we're losing. I, I don't want to overwhelm you with the stats, but I am going to share a few stats 
And it's overwhelming how we are losing as a nation in this regard right now. The percentage of Americans who say they have no close friends, zero close friends, has increased by 400% since 1990. Over 50% of Americans say, nobody knows me well. 44% of high schoolers report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. 25% of adults said, I feel lonely most of the day. In a Pew Research Forum survey recently done, 25% of adults say, I feel lonely most of the day. 30% of people under 25 say they have regular thoughts of suicide. Two common culprits for loneliness, at least in my research, are social media and politics. Social media has given us the illusion, the illusion of being more connected, but the truth is we are more connected right now while simultaneously being less connected than any generation in American history. We're more connected to more people while being more disconnected to genuine friendships than any generation in American history. Young people who are lonely today share that they are, here's the statistic, seven times more likely to say that they are highly involved in politics. Young people who admit to being lonely are seven times more likely to be involved with politics than their peers who are not involved in politics. Now, why is it These two things can be that which present as friendship or present as opportunities to make connection, but they fail so much. Social media, it's obvious. You have the superficial cut connection well with people, but it doesn't do anything at a deep level for most of us in terms of really building friendships. But with politics, you're looking for something that's transcendent to provide some connection well with other people, but mostly what it does is get two people really angry. That's mostly what it does today. And so expecting these two things, social media or politics, to be the avenues through which I would grow in friendship is kind of like trusting, I don't know, a kayak to get you to Hawaii. They're just not the kind of vehicles that can get you to deep relationships. Many of us live in this constant pain of rejection from a family member or a friend. We fear the experience of being canceled by a family member or friend, oftentimes because we have been. And the experience of that leaves us gasping for air, does it not? Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy wrote an essay on the epidemic of loneliness in the United States in 2023, and he summarized with these statistics. He says, the physical health consequences of poor or insufficient connection include a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, and a 50% increased risk of developing dementia for older adults. Additionally, lacking social connection increases risk of premature death by more than 60%. In other words, having real connection with people is even more powerful for your health than your daily vitamins. Like, 
we all know that social connection with people is really important for us emotionally, relationally, even spiritually. But what he's saying there is it's very powerful for us physically as well. And with the epidemic of loneliness, the lack of deep connections are physical ramifications for Americans as well right now. Now, aside from all of the stats, just think of people that you've known who have lost their lives or have considered ending their lives to suicide. I know a number of people who have chosen to end their lives because they falsely believed they had no one to talk to. There were people that would have talked to them, but they falsely believed that they did not have anyone to talk to. And I've known others who had so much pride in not needing to talk to anyone that they decided to hold on to their pride rather than their lives. And they chose to end their lives rather than talk to someone. Ladies, let let me teach you a little bit about men, okay? Your husbands, your brothers, your sons, your dads were raised with a couple rules that are different than the rules you were raised with. They are raised with the rule that when you're suffering, you don't admit it. Guys are trained to show that when I'm suffering, I'm supposed to tell people that I'm just fine. I'm all right, don't worry about me. And then the second rule that guys are trained on is this. If you know another man is suffering and he tells you that he's just fine, we're trained to accept the lie, right? We're trained not to say anything. We're trained to just accept it. Now, I wanna introduce you to a couple guys here in the scriptures. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. You'll find it in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, then Joshua, Judges, then 1 Samuel 18. And these are two men who were warriors who refused to accept the lie. And they recognized that maybe society would say it's shameful to admit that you need a friend, but they refused to accept that lie. They acknowledged the other need for a friend. They recognized that they would blossom more as men with a friend. And this is the way God has designed us, men or women, we blossom more, we flourish more in the people God wants us to be when we embrace the way God has designed us. 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse one, the context of this is King David is not yet a king, he's a shepherd boy, but he just had his first military victory. He killed that giant named Goliath by the power of God and all the people are going crazy for him. 1 Samuel 18, verse one. After David had finished talking with Saul, the king of Israel, 
about this great military victory, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Jonathan is the son of Saul. They become friends. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as he loved himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Okay, what's going on there? There have been some commentators who have suggested that what's going on there is a romantic relationship between David and Jonathan, and that's simply not the case. What's happening here is you have a prince in Jonathan. He's an heir to David, excuse me, he's an heir to Saul's throne. And much as is the case today, you think of the king of England and all of his pomp when he goes in for Christmas mass, he has these big robes on. So also back in that day, the king of Israel, the prince of Israel, would have multiple layers of clothing. They dressed much differently then with multiple layers than we do here today. But especially if you were royalty, you would have an outer robe. And the outer robe demonstrated your royalty. And what Jonathan is doing here is he's saying, I take off my outer robe and with it my sword, and I give it to you, David, as I am demonstrating my loyalty to you. Not only demonstrating my loyalty to you, I'm also acknowledging that I am not the heir to my father's kingdom throne. It's you, David. David, you are the heir to the kingdom. And you're going to be the next king over Israel. It's not going to be me, even though I am the rightful heir of the king. That's what's going on here. He's transferring his power and his privilege and demonstrating his loyalty to David, the shepherd who will be king. The passage continues here in verse 5. Whatever mission Saul went on, Excuse me, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel and to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. Saul was very angry with this refrain. It displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but they have only given me credit for thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Now, David, of course, had not killed tens of thousands. It's a song. They're singing a song to say, David, wow, amazing, you killed Goliath. You killed this one giant. And they're singing a song of thanks and praise to him, and Saul can't stand it. He thought, what more can he get but the entire kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So the rest of the chapter here, chapter 18, David has some more military successes. And as he does, if you might read chapter 18 through 20 later on today, as he has more military successes, uh, Saul keeps a closer eye on him. And his jealousy toward David grows. And he has this feeling that I need David because he's this wonderful warrior, this great military chief. 
but I'm a little fearful of David's stardom that is growing right before my eyes. Turn over to chapter 19, and the story cut continues. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. So he has jealousy that turns into rage, that turns into bloodthirsty violence. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David, and he warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done? And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life into his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and you were glad. It's very interesting. Both Jonathan and David acknowledged that who killed Goliath was not David, it was the Lord. Okay? It was the Lord. They both give praise to God, but Saul is so consumed with his rage, all he can see is this man getting more credit than him. You saw it and you were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and he took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. So Jonathan here, he convinces his dad not to kill David. And Saul says yes. I agree, I take an oath, I'm not going to kill your friend David, I recognize he's a good man, but basically he just gives a bald-faced lie to Jonathan. He doesn't want to admit to his son that he plans on killing his friend. You see, Saul is the kind of leader that cannot stand seeing another leader get the spotlight. Have you ever known someone like that? Like, There's a lot of those kinds of leaders, even today, that just cannot handle someone else getting any bit of credit, he is so narcissistic, so consumed with being the center of attention all the time that he has to kill a man. And so he goes against this oath that he makes to his son, Jonathan, and in the next scene, as you go through chapter 19, he takes out a spear and he tries to kill David, and David eludes him, he runs away, he's safe, and then after that, He picks out a couple thugs to go down to find David with his wife, McCall, who happens to be Saul's daughter. And these thugs go over to David's house and they try to attack him while he's in bed with his wife, McCall. But David eludes him, eludes those two thugs that come to try to kill him. They get out of the way and he's safe. He's like the flash, he can't be got. You move over to chapter 20 now, and the story continues. And David knows no matter what I do, Saul is out to get me. Jonathan remains unconvinced of all this. We pick up the story there. Verse 1, then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan, and he asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why, we, why would he hide this from me? It isn't so, he says. But David took it an oath, 
But David took an oath and he said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So Jonathan remains unconvinced that his dad is indeed this bloodthirsty killer. He knows his dad is like, hot with rage anytime he sees David, but he can't believe that he would lie to his son. He says, my dad is not that bad. And so David uh, develops this scheme with Jonathan to test whether Saul really intends to, to kill David. It goes on here above verse five. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I am supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because of an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, please show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? It's really astonishing to me that David is at this point like a military general. He's become a superstar in the army. And how does he describe himself to Jonathan? I'm your servant. Like the level of humility that he demonstrates toward his friend. And so they devise this plan together. And in essence, as you continue through chapter 20, Jonathan goes to this feast at Saul's home, and David does not. He goes to hide in the field. And Jonathan looks to see how his dad will respond. And sure enough, at this feast, Saul is livid with anger that David is not there because he intended to kill David at the feast. And Jonathan realized, my dad is indeed that bad. He is that guy. Verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I'm not sure why he has to bring his mother into it, but... Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as this son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Whoa, Nellie, Jonathan says. My dad is crazy. And so he's on the run now, too. And he runs to find his friend David. And he finds him in this forest where he's hidden. And they embrace, and he acknowledges, yes, it's true. My dad is after you. You are now on the run. And as they embrace, this is what it looks like. Verse 41 David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. 
Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to his own hometown. And so Jonathan sacrifices for David. He really loses his relationship well with his father. He sacrifices his own safety for David. And then shortly thereafter, Jonathan dies in battle. And sure enough, David is true to his commitment to his friend Jonathan. He says, I'll provide for you and your family. And Jonathan has a disabled son named Mephibosheth. Say that five times fast. Mephibosheth. And David provides for Mephibosheth, this disabled son. He provides for him for the rest of his life. Occasionally, Jonathan found there's even a friend who sticks closer than a father. So, like, what do you take from this entire episode? This long story, and again, I encourage you to read the whole thing, chapter 18 through 20, later on today. But what I take from this episode is a couple different things as it relates to our series here this January on friendship. And the first one is this. True friendship is based more on shared virtue than it is based on shared pleasure or shared utility. Let me unpack that for you. I get these three categories from Aristotle. Aristotle, the great philosopher back in 400 B.C., wrote a lot about friendship. And he said there's three different kinds of friendship. There's the friendship of shared pleasure, shared utility, and shared virtue. The friendship of shared pleasure is, I like being with you because you make me laugh. We're drinking buddies. We go to the football games together. There's a shared pleasure that we have when we're with each other. We like shopping together, shared pleasure. There's nothing wrong with friendships on the basis of shared pleasure. It's just that they're insufficient. A second form of friendship today is the friendship of shared utility. It's amazing to me that Aristotle wrote about this 2,400 years ago because it is so true today. And the friendship of shared utility basically says, I'll scratch your back and you scratch my back. I'll do this business deal with you, you do this business deal with me. We are friends because our kids both play on the same baseball team together, so we have lots of repetitions with each other, and that's that. We're friends because we share the same politics. Like there's this friendship of shared utility, and that's that. Again, each of those things are beneficial at times, but they are deeply insufficient for what the Bible would call real friendship. Real friendship is a friendship of virtue. Shared virtue, that I see you want to become a man of God, and so do I. And so I'm willing to help you become a man of God, and I would ask you also to help me become a man of God. It's the shared virtue that says, I want your goodness, and you want my goodness. You want me to flourish into the man that God wants me to become, and vice versa. Does that make sense? It's very different than mere shared pleasure and shared utility. And the problem today across most of America is we are sacrificing genuine friendship for those insufficient vehicles that won't actually get us a friendship. Please notice in this passage, David's humility. Again, he's a military superstar and he calls himself a servant to Jonathan, 
bowing down before him three times. The chief cardinal virtue above every other virtue is humility. And you see it there with David. Another virtue, of course, is sacrifice, courageous sacrifice. And you see it with Jonathan big time. He loses his dad in the pursuit of truth and justice. He stands for integrity and truth at the risk of his own life. These are two men of virtue, and they build each other up along the way, developing a friendship that is way bigger than watching some football games together. We need friendships that are based on shared virtue, not just shared pleasure or shared utility. And second, true friendship breaks through fear in order to show affection to one another. So again, David and Jonathan, you just heard it, when they embrace each other in that field, after both of their lives were on the line, they embrace each other, they weep together, and the Bible says they kissed each other. In Hebrew culture back then, and at the time of Jesus, and in Hebrew culture today, the standard greeting amongst genuine friends and family is to kiss each other on the cheek. Perhaps you remember in the New Testament, there's more than a few times that the New Testament writers say, greet one another with a holy kiss. Remember that? Please shake your head with me if you remember that. Anyone? Yes. Okay, so we're going to start a holy kissing ministry in this church today. <laughs> no, we're not. No, we're not. Stop looking at me that way. Okay, th this is an example of what you would call a timeless principle, but a time-based command. The New Testament command, greet each other with a holy kiss, it is a command, because that was the standard way of greeting in Hebrew culture. Okay, but it's not a timeless command for all people, all generations. Thank you, God. Okay. It's, um, it's a way of God saying, show affection to each other. Okay, so how do we do that in this culture? It would include, like, maybe give bro hugs to each other. Maybe send a letter to each other. Maybe express affection in a text. Maybe demonstrate that you're really present with someone by putting away the dang phone. Maybe it's choosing to serve each other. All of those are valid and beautiful ways to demonstrate affection for one another. But the key idea is, it is shameful to believe that we're not affectionate people. God has made us affectionate people and we will not build good friendships without the like sticking power, the glue of affection. We all have to like really figure out what does that mean for me and how do I show it toward those around me to demonstrate that I care for them. Frankly, you can have a difficult time really growing deep friendships without the demonstration of some affection. I, I have a dear friend, I think about this a lot well with him. 
uh, we met in college, at Hastings College, and we probably connect by phone uh, once or twice a year, maybe meet up in person once or twice a year as well. And he is from the little, bitty, tiniest town. And he was raised as a rancher and a cowboy. Friends, I never met a rancher until I met him in college. I was raised in an urban environment, in a larger city. Yeah, I am not a cowboy, okay? (laughs) To state the obvious, right? He was raised around animals all the time. I never had animals in my house growing up. Uh, His parents raised him in a very different way than my parents raised me. I love traveling. He's more of a homebody. Uh, He likes Android phones. I like really good phones. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, we're very, very different people. But I tell you what, we're even different theologically. He's a pastor as well. He's much more Pentecostal. I'm much less Pentecostal. And when I get off the phone with Matt, I tell him, brother, I love you. And he tells me, brother, I love you. And Matt has made me, in spite of all of our differences, a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, a better man. We allow our differences to define us to our peril. And we miss out on God's design in the process. When you reject God's design, you lose in any area of life. When you embrace God's design, you win. Just think of Jesus this way. Jesus had at least 15 friends that we know of. His 12 disciples. He also calls Mary, Martha, and Lazarus his friends. There are probably many more, but at least 15. And he was not afraid to say to his friends that he loved them. And he was not afraid to touch them. He was not afraid to wash their feet. He was not afraid to die for them. Do do you have friends that you would die for? Do you have friends that you're not afraid to say, I love you? Okay, this is a really, really good thing. Hear Jesus' words for us from John 15 about friendship. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Wow. Jesus was not afraid to call his friends friends. He was not afraid to say, I love you to his friends. He's not afraid to say, I love you to you. It's uh, bewildering to me 
that the prince of Israel, who was a warrior, was unashamed to admit that he needed a friend. And King David was unashamed to admit that he needed a friend. And Jesus, the Son of God, was unashamed to admit he needed friends. And yet, many today are ashamed to admit that they need friends. When we refuse God's design, we lose. And so I just want to encourage you as I wrap up here, how are you putting yourself in a position? How are you putting yourself in at least one or two environments where friendships can develop? It it, it won't happen quickly, but you must put yourself in such an environment. For men, it could be that men's forge that you just heard about on Monday evenings or Wednesday mornings. You just put yourself in a position to get some good teaching and then to be in a group well, with a number of men who accept you as you are and you start learning from each other. For others, it could be you remember how good your rooted group was in the fall and you haven't been meeting since then. And it's been five or six weeks now and you realize that something's missing. And so you say, I'm going to get that group back together. And as we get our rooted group back together, we think about why did this work so well throughout the fall? And I guarantee you one of the reasons that it worked so well is you had to share some of your stuff with each other. You had to be vulnerable enough to share some of your stuff with each other and to accept each other and to acknowledge a neediness with that. And as we do that, that becomes part of the soil that God uses to grow friendship. For others, it's like choosing to serve with a handful of others and open your life to to them. I love going over to the storehouse ministry over on the north end of our building and seeing the way a number of people in that storehouse ministry relate to one another as friends as they are serving together. Frequently, it's as we serve together that we grow in deep relationship with each other. The same thing is true with our Men in Action ministry. Think of the men in action teams of four or five guys that go out to a single mom's house, go out to a widow's house on a monthly basis, and they serve their basic needs in their homes, and obviously they're meeting a really, really important need in our church family with those widows and single moms that they would never be left alone, God forbid, but at the same time as meeting that need, guess what else is happening? Friendships are growing because they're shoulder to shoulder serving with one another. So my hope for you, my prayer for you as we start this series is simply this, that at the beginning of the year, as we talk about like calendaring and you think about the goals that you're making for this year to come, wouldn't it be wise to include in the calendar, to include in your resolutions for this year some space for friendship to possibly begin to develop? Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your help on this one. We admit that we are fragile people. And many of us live in fear as it relates to relationships because we've been rejected. And that pain is very real. So Father, we ask that you would help us if anyone is in that place right now to have the courage to break through. 
and to acknowledge first to you and then to put ourselves into a position with a few others that we begin to emerge out of loneliness and begin to find a soft soil where friendship can grow and develop. Lord, we want to become stronger people. And in order to become stronger people of virtue, in order to flourish as men and women, to become people of humility and kindness and sacrifice and service, we oftentimes need a brother or sister that, that roots us on, that wants our best, that loves us and pursues us as we pursue Christ. And so, Father, would you help us in this way? Give us courage where we're scared. Help us to look out for those even around us who are lonely right now. God, please give us kindness that we would not quickly reject one another, that we would refuse the contemporary culture around us that so quickly cancels relationships with family and friends, and instead we would be the kinds of God-honoring Christians that say, let's work through this together. Let's acknowledge our differences and work through this together because this friendship matters to me. This family relationship, it matters to me. Lord Jesus, you say that we're to love one another as you have loved us. And so for that, we we confess that we really need your help. Help us to receive your love more and more and then to give that out to others. We'll be careful to be like King David and Jonathan and give you all glory and credit for all the results. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray together. Amen. Amen.